Hello, and welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers of all stripes about why they make, their creative process, and what inspires them, with me, your host, Eric Wolken. Here we are in Season 5 of the podcast, which we are calling Mind of a Maker, and we're going to take a slightly different approach to how we do things by focusing more in on the creative process itself. Each episode will examine a specific work or body of work of our guests and take a deep dive into just how that work evolved. Also, and this is a very new element for us, along with each podcast, we will be producing short films to take the highlights from our conversations and put them in a visual form. These will be available on the website as well with the podcast and also on our YouTube channel. These are brand new and exciting developments for YMake, and we could really use your support. Please consider making a tax-deductible contribution of any size through our fiscal sponsor, Fractured Atlas, by going to our website, y-make.com, and clicking the Donate button. On our first episode of 2024, we start off with a bang, my apologies for the pun, as we discuss making art with disabled guns with Boris Bally. Boris is a jeweler and a metalsmith who describes himself as a discriminating sculptor and a clever cultural critic. We had a discussion on all things not guns in episode 56 of the Why Make podcast, so check that out after you're done listening to this. As a way of giving context to this conversation, I should tell you that Boris and I grew up together in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the 60s, a time when all things that looked like weapons brought young boys like us joy, and unfortunately that may well still be the truth today. We had cap guns, we made slingshots from anything we could find, and we looked at ads for Daisy BB guns and Boy's Life and other magazines and comic books and dreamed one day of owning one. The only time I ever shot a gun in my life was with Boris. We took a Pennsylvania Hunter safety class together when we were both in middle school, and we got to shoot 22s, rifles upon completion of being declared Pennsylvania safe hunters. All of that is to say my modern knowledge of guns is almost non-existent, but they feel like an important part of both Boris's and my shared childhood. This conversation was recorded in July of 2023, at the Picosan Art School in Columbia, North Carolina, while Boris was teaching a metals workshop with Bob Ebendorf. It was a whole month later before I actually sat down and started looking at the rough footage and starting to think about how to put this episode together. That day was, in fact, Monday, August 28th, and the reason I remember that day was that my partner Rachel called to tell me that she was barricaded in her office at the University of North Carolina The campus was completely locked down, and an active shooter was at large on campus and had killed at least one person. Why I mention this at all, I guess, is to say just how difficult it is to escape the impact of this very particular object has on society and the loaded question of how and why weapons can become art. So here we go with our first episode of the 2024 season called high-caliber art with Boris Bally. First, I asked him to walk me through the origins of this idea and just when he first started working with guns. About 1996 or so, started an organization for metalsmiths when I moved back to Pittsburgh um, called Pittsburgh Metal Society, PMS. And um, because of 
I guess the my exposure to the slightly greater um, public, the a group, a coalition called the Good Goods for Guns Coalition, approached me because I'm the only metalsmith. I guess they knew or heard of Goods for Guns Anti-Violence Coalition was an organization that did a buyback program. What they would do is have a buyback every year where they would get hundreds of guns and they would give people who brought their guns in uh, gift certificates. So basically it was like an amnesty program and the idea was to just get guns out of harm's way. So they came to me, this group, and they came with this article from the New York Times that was about an exhibition that had been done in New Orleans. And it was Brian Borello and Jonathan Ferrara, who had a gallery in New Orleans, who put on a show called Guns in the Hands of Artists. The article in question is a 1996 article in the New York Times by Rick Bragg, titled Guns That Kill and Art That Hurts. It starts by saying, this is not art that pleases the eye. It is art that aims between the eyes and drills deep. One of the participating artists was a trauma ward doctor who produced a headless, armless marble statue reclining on a hospital gurney speckled with blood and wearing a necklace of mangled handguns. And they came to me with this article and they said, you know what, the problem with our buybacks is there's no awareness. We're sick of seeing all these shootings in our emergency rooms in Pittsburgh. There's got to be something we can do to create more awareness. Instead of just a buyback around the holidays, let's do something of lasting impact. And here's an exhibition I wish we could do. Would you be interested? I said, I would. However, um, let's back up. Let me call the gallery guy down in New Orleans, Jonathan Ferraro, and talk with him. I think I ended up talking to both Brian Borello and Jonathan Ferraro. And I said, how would you feel if I kind of carried the torch of your show idea? Of course, I'll give you credit and do my own kind of bend on it, which is guns are metal. We're metalsmiths. We have the ability to potentially make guns, but we also have the understanding of how to dissect them and maybe turn, transform them into something more lasting and meaningful. And um, maybe I could harness my community to create an exhibition and um, see where that goes. And I took it on and that was uh, called uh, Artists of a Different Caliber. I had never put on an exhibition in my life. I had no clue whatsoever. I had to kind of figure out what do you do. So I had to, I put together a jury panel. I put, I uh, had to get some money. So I had to, I ended up being the fundraiser for it. I wanted to have a catalog if we're going to do a show. And then I also had to kind of harness the artists and keep track of how do they get guns for me and how do I track getting the artwork back. So it was all new learned stuff. And it was met with immense success. I forget how many people were in the show. I would guess maybe 40 or 50. Um, and it, it was a kind of a national show. A lot of people responded that I had originally reached out to and it became a thing. And we had our initial exhibition on um, at Carnegie Mellon University at the Hewlett Gallery. Um, we gave away awards. A few of the pieces ended up in the Smithsonian collection which is pretty kind of a nice feather in the cap for these you know, people and for the show. Good affirmation for all these efforts actually 
kind of produce something. And the show toured to, I think, five or six different places around the region. So anyway, that was 1997. And I think it toured 97 to 98, something like that. I wondered if advocacy had ever been a part of his practice as an artist before this. Well, yeah. I mean, the what informs my work, my studio practice, many times is the challenge of whatever, maybe an exhibition or a competition, what that brings to me. And if something piques my interest, I'll say, you know, that's an interesting topic. You know, women's uh, reproductive rights. Uh, wow, I could do something for that. And it, it allows me to expand my creativity based on that as a theme. So that's, that's as far as I've gotten is to participate, you know, be one in a group show or something like that, a theme. But this is the first time, uh, the gun show was the first time that I really kind of hook, line and sinker decided to become the organizer and, and embrace it. Boris also participated in artists of a different caliber building a piece called One Easy Shot of a revolver with a barrel pointing up with its butt on a machined aluminum base and a sterling silver funnel coming out of its ruptured barrel, meant to mimic a martini glass and the notion it only takes one shot of anything to change everything. I asked him what other kinds of works he had created with all of the guns he had collected during this time. Right, so I was doing work on my own with different weapons. I mean, here I had this medium that I ended up spending a lot of time on, burning through, you know, disabling them, storing them. So I thought, hey, this is kind of interesting. What can I do with it? Um, and right around 2001, I won a competition called Convergence in Providence where I was able to make this gigantic totem pole it's still up today uh, on South Main Street in Providence across from the Superior Court. And uh, the guy who was heading Convergence, Bob Rizzo, gave it this great spot. I mean, right across from Superior Court, it's like, careful. So the, the gun totem piece, the concept was that it was basically like a barrel of a gun with uh, the profile of having a sight. But instead of just having the sight in one part, it, was, it went down top to bottom um, and it kind of telescoped up. And it was, I'm, I'm a jeweler mainly, I'm a small scale metal guy and this is the biggest thing by far that I've ever done I think it was 9,000 pounds um, and the way we ended up doing it is with insulation foam two inch blue insulation foam we created sections and encased these in a large plywood coffin size thing you know three three lengths of coffin I think it was 12 foot 14 feet long tied the guns to the outside with binding wire. So we'd have guns on the outside and we dumped guns in there. And then I had a concrete truck come up and pour the concrete in and we tapped it and banged it, waited for it to cure. Um, and then Bob Rizzo, who organized the Convergence Festival, kindly lent me a crane so we could upright it and I could remove the mold and we could chip away at the concrete to expose the guns and cut the binding wire that was holding many of them to the outside. Um, and then eventually we transported it to its site. Ironically, NPR was going to interview me on um, September 11th, 2001. And they were sitting with me just as you are now and mic'd me up and ready to go tell me about the gun totem. And the guy said, wait, something big's happening. I got to go. And I said, wait, wait. 
we're, we're ready to go. It doesn't take long. He said, no, I have to go. And he packed everything up and left. And it was 9-11. It was the planes had hit the, the World Trade Center. So, which is karmically kind of weird because here I am making a peace for peace. And now all this violence is ensuing. The guns that went into that piece, thousand guns, I ended up, many of these, I took out the triggers because I always thought the trigger is a really important part of a gun. It's the thing, it's the contact point. It's the one thing that like, shoot or not shoot. So to me, that was kind of a loaded um, metaphor right there. So before the guns were embedded in concrete, I thought I could, I could rob the material from them. So I broke out these different triggers and I started experimenting and that's how I came up with this necklace. The brave, the brave necklaces I thought were I, my favorite pieces because of the really strong kind of tie to the idea Native American culture and indigenous cultures where they believe that something that scares you, that if you wear the pieces of those things like the claws or the, the teeth of something, it will protect you against something that you're afraid of. So I thought that's a great metaphor. So like a bear claw necklace. And these triggers looked uh, ominously like bear claws. So it was kind of, you know, what, not anthropomorphizing it, obviously because they're bears, but um, taking this natural part and turning it into a mechanical part. That, so that's the kind of the connection. I was curious if there was a thought when he first pulled the triggers out of the guns for the totem piece, if that the triggers by themselves out of context from the gun somehow disarmed them. Taking the triggers out of a gun does, it, it, it makes it a mysterious piece. It's not as obvious and blatant as a gun would be. It's not as recognizable. And so it abstracts it and it makes the viewer, the wearer, you know, think twice about what it is that they're wearing. I'd also like to say that the triggers themselves are actually part of the mechanism. They're really big. And so a big part, the big labor involved in using triggers in a necklace is actually removing most of the material except for the business end, you know, and then soldering on the little silver rings. The, the guns as a material, it's actually an unfamiliar material to me in that it's, it's steel, uh, mostly steel. Sometimes it's Zamac, which is a zinc alloy, but it's, it's basically a material that I have not been trained to use. So it's kind of, it's got a newness that way. Once you step back from the fact that it's a gun, I mean, that part doesn't bother me or doesn't really affect me, except it does when you're working on a, a gun, it does make you think about, you know, what is, what has been the life of this gun? Where has it been? What has it seen? Was it used for hunting? Was it used for, you know, killing? Um, so it does make you think that way, but it's a, Kind of an unforgiving material so what i tend to do is bring in something semi-precious um, something more familiar and still try to accent whatever it is the the steel of the gun but you know bring a certain kind of preciousness to certain parts of it by using silver or gold in the form of uh, like a the amulet part of the brave necklace has gold in it that becomes the focus point I asked him about how he developed ideas and went about making his own pieces from guns. Well, um, after having disabled them, I became very familiar with the gun as a medium and its, its different components. But that, well, 
what I found was the most helpful was to kind of break it down to different components. That was my favorite way to do it. Um, the one exception being the gun menorah, which is called loaded menorah, which is an assemblage of different guns in different positions, eventually with all the barrels pointing up with a sterling silver disc on each one where the candles will go. And I, I guess that was really more of kind of a concept driven thing. Menorahs are celebrate the festival of lights. It's, it celebrates the, a temple that was devastated and the fact that an oil kept burning much longer than it should have. It was a miracle. And I, to me, the metaphor of light above darkness worked. And so I thought, I've got to do this project. And that's how that ended up. A brief note here. As I mentioned previously, this conversation was recorded in July of 2023, before the war in Gaza. And also this piece was built many, many, many years before that. So I felt compelled to give Boris a call and get an update on his feelings about this piece. And we had a long talk. But basically, to paraphrase, Boris said he still believes in the ideal of light over dark and guns should never be used as offensive weapons. But it gets complicated for him when you're talking about the defense of a people or a culture. As I understand it, you continued to receive guns from the Pittsburgh gun buyback program well after you left Pittsburgh and had moved to Providence, Rhode Island. Years went by and every year they kept having weapons that they would take in from the buybacks. And, but this time, rather than melting them down um, into ingots as they had done in the past, they kind of saved them for me. They would, every couple of years, they'd call me and say, hey, Boris, we've got all these guns. Um, are you going to come and get them? So the process was I had to drive to Pittsburgh. They would bring up these huge banana boxes filled with guns. I'd throw them in my van and I would get a police escort to a warehouse that I had set up. We would separate the guns out to the various comp types that, that they have, like the semi-automatic Glock type and the revolving type and the long guns. So part of the disabling process was that uh, the revolver, for instance, I would have to draw a bead, a welding bead along the revolving portion of it so that it would freeze it and then shove a, a a bead of uh, welding wire down the barrel. Um, and I think the cocking part, the hammer part, I would have to weld that so it wouldn't work. That, for instance, one type of gun. Um, so that's kind of how that evolved. And then I just kept bringing these to Providence, Rhode Island, where I now lived. And, you know, after a while, I told him, okay, okay, that's enough. But I had accumulated hundreds of these, um, if not over a thousand. I wouldn't be surprised if it was over a thousand. It would have up a lot of space. So what to do with all of these guns? In light of all the horrible things that have been ha happening, um, the shootings started getting worse and worse and worse and more frequent. And the guns were even more of a problem. It wasn't, the problem wasn't going away. It wasn't lessening. And I, I was really disturbed personally by all the horrible violence um, that they seemed to inflict, you know, or promote. Um, so at one point I thought, you know what, I've had it. I've got to do this again. And this is uh, how many years later? When did I do this? 2018. Around 2018, I thought, 
Let's do this again, only this time I'm going to do it right, based on the lessons that I've learned the first time with artists of a different caliber. The project was called Imagine Peace Now, the innovative merger of art and guns to inspire new expressions of peace now. A bit of a mouthful there, but it actually toured in 2016 and 2017 to the Wellington B. Gray Gallery at East Carolina University and the Society for Arts and Crafts in Boston. The wonderful hardback book that was produced with the show is available at imaginepeacenow.org. Uh, I will also post a link to it on our website, y-make.com. It contains the pretty amazing and powerful work of 94 artists, including, for example, the first place winner, Marilyn De Silva's creation, Bird of Prey, a revolver covered in feathers made from etched copper that were made to hug the shape of the gun, almost as if the gun had been tarred and feathered. She accompanies the image of her piece with a simple poem. A raptor perches on a falconer's glove. Its hood is removed and the prey is in sight. Like a speeding bullet, it reaches its mark, striking the target in the blink of an eye. Boris told me how he was able to pull off such an extraordinary show. So I did a better job of fundraising. I put together a kind of a, a more esteemed jury of people that would um, be more kind of recognizable. And I realized that if I raised the profile of the people involved in my group, that the artists that would be willing to come together to do this project um, would be more enticed to do it. And if I had a book that I could do it with, then it would be something that I could help the artists with, that they would get some recognition that they deserved for taking part in this. Part of the idea was not only to benefit artists, but to have something to produce, to generate some income to then in turn donate to various peace organizations, such as Moms Demand Action, Every Town um, for Safety, and the Rhode Island Coalition Against Gun Violence, the Brady Campaign. And the idea was to get people to think about gun violence um, via the vehicle of art. It's, it's such a loaded topic and people are so polarized on it. Um, gun owners, non-gun owners, everybody has a take on it. Both sides don't talk to each other. I think that's the biggest problem with gun violence as an issue. The, the pro-gun and the anti-gun people probably would agree, I think, on how to solve the issues if they would just get together and talk. So my idea for the show was, let's start the conversation through art. When you're looking at something, you're no longer facing each other. You know, it's not a conflict as much as it is a discussion. And having witnessed a lot of the openings, I've seen that happen. We all learn something of lasting value from every project we make. So I asked Boris what he had learned during the gun project and what he can take forward. Well, I think what I've learned from working with guns, I think the biggest thing I've learned is actually not so much about the art or the craft. It's really more about the community. I've, I've learned to, that I'm not working alone in my basement somewhere, my studio. I'm actually part of a community. I learned and realized that if you want change, you really do have to kind of belong, get out of your comfort zone, go to protests, you know, become a member of an organization. One thing that is just enriching to me is 
kind of reinforcing is that this community of like-minded makers, it gives me a sense of place, of context, and it, um, it makes me feel like I'm a part of this community. And that the shows that I put on have reinforced that. I'm putting on a show now. Um, I've curated a show called Four by Six, which has to do with homelessness. Um, right now, it, it's dealing with the United Kingdom. Um, there's a, Alex Dauber is a guy in London that reached out to me. Would you do something for a homeless show? Yes, I would. Sends me some panels of a double-decker bus to work into something. So, you know, made a chair, donated it to that. That felt really good. And I thought, you know, this is something our metalsmiths could do. And I put together a little mini USA Yankee show. Um, sent my friends a piece of double-decker bus. And now they're going to have a show in London that's going to support the homeless problem there. And, you know, eventually my hope is that it will come here. And it's interesting. It's a new thing, a new material. And it's, it's, uh, it's also a problem that we face in this country. And so... I'm learning to find my voice strangely through the material that I use. This project started in 1996, almost 30 years ago, and Boris still has a sizable collection of guns, some of which he gives out to other artists to make work. But is he still interested in working with guns himself? I'd like to. I have a few ideas. Um, as I'm handing out these guns to different artists, there's certain gun parts that appeal to me. For instance, the butts of guns, the longer guns, I've collected those, set those aside. I think, dare I go do something out of wood? You know, it would be interesting. Maybe I'll give it to you and you can make something out of wood. Um, I'm looking at the, the butts of um, pistols. Some of them have really interesting materials, mother of pearl, um, interesting writing on them, interesting histories, you know, U.S. Cavalry, you know, 1920 gun or whatever it is. So I'm hoping to, when the right time comes along, that I'll use those materials. Finally, I asked him if he had any last thoughts on working with guns as an art medium. Yeah, I, I think um, one thing, I'm going to be teaching up at Haystack this very topic and the idea, I'm gonna bring some guns and we're gonna disable them. I'm not disabled, disassemble them. They're already disabled. And we're gonna talk about making artwork from them there in the class. And that to me, that kind of the danger of it is that the, you don't wanna trivialize the whole gun thing. You don't wanna fetishize it. So it's kind of a fine line between making a little pretty ornament that has a little gorgeous little gun part in it what does that really mean? Somehow, it's a burden to take it and say something with it that's not just pretty. So that's what, what I'm hoping, you know, folks that end up doing artwork with guns take into consideration. Some closing thoughts here. I asked Boris to bring a few guns with him to our interview at Pocosin, and as I said before, I'm pretty unfamiliar with guns, and I really sort of wanted to experience the raw material for myself, and he showed up with quite a few. He showed up with a DeWalt tool bag full of guns, maybe 30 in all, and, and what stood out to me the most was really how small they were, and how they just sort of resembled 
cheap children's toys from my youth. They, they felt more like cap guns than lethal weapons. Uh, the handles were junky and plastic. Uh, in some cases, it was just masking tape wrapped around the base of the gun for a handle, and it, it felt underwhelmingly and strangely non-threatening. And perhaps it was just the selection of guns Boris chose to bring. Or maybe it speaks to the whole complicated legacy of guns in our culture, that they can represent many different things to different people at different times. Safety, sport, hunting, you know, a way to make a living, and of course, death and injury. Therein lies the challenge of using them to make art. Please also look for the film High Caliber Art with Boris Bally based on this conversation. It can be found on the Y-Make website and our YouTube channel. Also, Boris Bally was a guest in episode 56 of the podcast, so if you'd like to know more about his background and career, give that a listen. And once again, a big thank you to the Pocosin School of Art for hosting us on their campus so graciously. And thank you to our supporters for making Y-Make possible. You can contribute to Y-Make at y-make.com go to the donate page your contributions are tax deductible through our fiscal partner fractured atlas and please please give us feedback as we try to figure out new ways to bring you closer to the making experience why make is produced by eric wolken and rob helmkamp and the generous help of nick beery of beery media chip hitchcock and joe hannah and as always why make <laughs>